0: There was a book written a number of years ago. Uh, it was titled, None of These Diseases. And it was written by S.I. McMillan. And in this, this uh, book, uh, the author um, was telling the story of a young lady who applied to go to college. Like everyone, you know, not everyone does. But everyone, when you apply, you have to do this. And so she went through the admission department. And she signed a number of things and filled out this admissions form. In the form, it said something similar to this, are you a leader? She looked at that and pondered for a moment because she thought, you know, if I don't say yes, they probably won't even look at me because everyone wants leaders. But she looked at it and honestly thought, I'm really not a leader and I'm comfortable with that. So she put a, no, I'm not. I'm much more comfortable in following. She sent it off and she thought for sure, ha, I'm done, I'm gonna go to another college Well, she got a letter from the admissions department, and here's what it said. Dear applicant, a study of our incoming applicants revealed that this year, our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Love, love, love that. And, And here's the reason why. I've been involved in education for a long time, taught school years ago, and, and, and been involved in our school. And uh, here's the truth. Every parent lives in a slight delusion that their kid is a leader until they get in trouble and then they want to find out who influenced them. <laughs> we do. We, we long to have leaders. I mean, it's almost kind of an embarrassment. I mean, no parent worth their salt is going to honestly say, yep, my kid's a follower. I mean, it's just rare. And if you are, bravo to you. Being a follower is actually a good thing. And maybe one of the challenges we set our kids up for when we tell them all their life, you be a leader, you be the leader, you be the leader, is one day they got to come to grips with they're not the ultimate leader. But our culture can lie on that one. Much like when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday and he came in to Jerusalem and everyone was yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus, your king. But it was only a few days later that they were screaming at the top of their lungs, kill him, kill him, kill him. And one of the challenges that you and I live in is a culture where created beings can tell the creator, I'm the master of my ship. I'm the captain of my life. And by and large, they get away with it. They do. People every day are telling God, God, I'll determine my gender. I'll determine who I am. That's not up to you. You're God, you can take care of the world. I'm the captain of my own soul. I'm the master of my life. And one of the challenges as a Christian is when you live in that world and you raise children in that world, and yes, they are leaders, many of them gifted by God, but they come to that place where they have to choose am I going to recognize that I'm not the ultimate leader? And there is someone who has complete authority over me and demands my submission. The challenge is that we live in a world where people can reject God and they do it all the time. And they might yell, kill him. They might just be quiet in their rage and dismiss him. This psalm that we're looking at today is a psalm, it's a coronation psalm. It was what they used when a new king was coming in. And they would anoint the king, but they always recognize whenever you anoint the king, there are a number of voices that are in the crowd. There is the voice of the rebellion. And the voice of rebellion rebels because they don't like the new king, and they don't like the new edicts, and they don't like the new taxes, and we don't like that. But there's also a voice of rebuke that speaks on that day. And there's a voice of resolve and there's a voice of invitation. As a Christian, if all you listen to is the voice of rebellion, it will melt your heart in discouragement. It will. You will cave under the weight of listening to people every day who run around like proud peacocks telling God, I'm the master of my life. And they will scream, God is dead. And they will say, I will determine my gender. I will determine who I sleep with. I am the determiner of my life. And we'll watch that. It will grow and our hearts will melt in discouragement if we don't listen to something other than the voice of rebellion. But that's where God starts. Because he says, whenever a new king comes, There's always going to be the voice of rebellion. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together and against the anointed one. And what do they say? Let us break free from his leadership and let us throw off any of their fetters. In other words, they rage in rebellion. It shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't discourage you. You should not be dismayed that you're going to hear today the voice of rebellion. It happens. In Nebraska, recently, they passed a couple of new uh, policies. Both of them, the protection of children. One in the womb and the other, those who are alive to prohibit sexual kind of uh, again the transition of of a child under the age of 19 uh, they made it a law and what happened the rebellious raged and they shouted and they proclaimed their dismay and they promised to overthrow the government why because submission it doesn't come natural to us rebellion does to everyone It shouldn't surprise us because there are new kings that come in. It doesn't matter who gets elected president. The other side is always going to say that was illegal. And they're going to say, ah, that's unfair or that's not right or the case may be. But why? Because we have this spirit in us. It's all the way back in the garden. In fact, it preceded the garden. It started up in heaven when Lucifer looked at God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and said, I am the master of my ship. I am the captain of my soul. I will determine what is good and evil. And then it came to Adam and Eve and they said, we are the masters of our life. We will determine what we eat. We will determine what is right and wrong. We talk about the fall of mankind, sin entering into the world. But sin entered into the world kingdom, if you will, from heaven. And it shouldn't surprise us. People rage today, they do. They rage. In fact, Peter in Acts chapter 4, he quotes this psalm. This is actually one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter's quoting this psalm and he talks about Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin. And what he simply says is they are reflecting the what? The conspiracy, the hatred, and the rage of those who hate the king. They rage. One of the hallmarks of sin is rebellion to authority. We hate it. Children want to rebel against their parents. And we are creating a culture where you know what? You can turn your parents in now. It's crazy. Parental authority is no longer presumed as it once was in our country. And so there just continues to be this erosion. Why? Because within us is this seed of rebellion that any authority that comes over us must, the the shackles must be thrown off. And it's tragic that 10 and 11 and 12 year old kids are being incited and in kind of encouraged and taught how to throw off the shackles of their parents and and in fact to turn their parents in if for whatever reason their parents don't align with the government policies. That shouldn't shock us. I'm not saying it encourages you, but you shouldn't be dismayed. Why? Because the voice of rebellion is always raged. And it goes on to say that they plot in vain Why do the nations conspire? And why do the peoples plot in vain? In other words, they get together and have discussions about overthrow when there's no real possibility of it happening. It's vain. But we do it all the time. William Ernst Henley's poem, you probably have heard it. It's called Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Uh, you, you have to be almost living in another planet to have never heard that. Nelson Mandela, that was one of his favorite quotes. Clint Eastwood made a movie out of it, kind of, and, and he called it Invictus, where he was depicting the South African rugby team. There was another individual, interestingly enough. It was the last words he scribbled on a piece of paper before he was executed. Timothy McVeigh, 168 people died because of the bomb that he created. 800 people were injured. And just before he was executed, he wrote down on a piece of paper Invictus. It was his last words on this earth. Because Timothy thought to himself, I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And we listen to that. We look at that and think, "How despicable. Yeah, it is. Were it not for centuries old practices. Where God says when the king is elevated. When authority is elevated. The rebellious shout against it. Now, as a Christian, if the only thing you've tuned your ear into is the rebellion and that's all you listen to and you obsess over it, it will melt your heart. It will. It will discourage you. It will cause you to think that the enemy is always winning. You'll throw up your hands in despair and you'll plead and think, where can I move? Where can I go? How do I get away from this world? You can't. You can't, why? Because the scripture tells us whenever the king is exalted, the rebellious shout. And it's not just in Timothy McVeigh, it's in our culture. It's in our culture where we really want to set God off on the side and say, I am the master of my life. I am the one that determines my gender. The voice of rebellion, it's everywhere. But there's another voice. There's actually three other voices in this text. The first one is the voice of rebuke. It's not one that we're actually really comfortable with. In fact, to to be honest with you, I think a lot of times Christians apologize for this voice. They're uncomfortable with a God who rebukes people. But they're also uncomfortable because what the text tells us, he says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Now, we've had these proud little peacocks rise up and say, throw off the shekels. We will be our own gods. We will be the masters of our own life. And then he says, okay, and now in heaven. What's happening in heaven? This is actually one of my favorite pictures of heaven. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. Oh, you measly little peasants down there. You proud peacocks. Oh, what are you doing? Shaking your fist at me once again? Yeah. Now, I understand that God the Father is a spirit and um, he he does not have bodily form in, in heaven. Christ does. And so this is in the Old Testament. This is the book of Psalms. And so um, I understand that I'm going to depict something that, that actually can't happen because he is spirit. But the imagery that the psalmist gives us is, in my mind, kind of like a grandpa sitting in his lounge chair. And he's pulled that baby back. And he is sitting there halfway between a nap and heaven. Just delighting in this day and his little two-year-old grandson comes up and starts pulling on his leg. Grandpa, I'm going to pull you off of your chair and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to be the king of this house. And grandpa, who bills in about 240 pounds at this point, looks at his little grandson and not for a moment is threatened by him. But he begins to laugh. Well that incites the little 2-year-old. He understands mockery. <laughs> and the little guy grabs grandpa's other ankle and he starts to pull with all of his might. I'm going to take you down, grandpa. I am going to be the king of this house. And grandpa looks at him. And again he just laughs. Oh, my grandson how I love you and how vain it is. You cannot even lift my left leg, let alone take this carcass off of this chair. <laughs> That's my picture of heaven. God looks down upon these poor peasants who are plotting in vain, who are shaking their fists at God and telling him I'm the master of my soul. I am the determiner of my gender. And God looks at them and laughs. It's not because he doesn't love them. It's because he's not threatened by them. It's because they pose no threat to him, to his plan, and to his purposes. It's because when he looks at them, though they rise up, And though on Sunday they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. And on Friday they were saying, kill him. He laughs. He laughs at rebellion. I don't. Sometimes I'm threatened by it. Sometimes I'm dismayed by it. But if I can make my way up into heaven and if I can hear the voice of the father, there's another voice. Yes, there's the voice of rebellion. And if it's the only voice you hear, it will melt your heart. It will steal your joy. It will cause you to worry. Anxiety will be your sleepmate every night. But if you can move yourself up into heaven just for a moment. And you can hear the father laugh. And it's not a laugh of mockery towards you. Though it says he scoffs at them. But what I think he's really doing is just like a grandfather. He's trying to help the grandson understand. You're fighting a losing battle. And you're going to do a whole lot better if you just crawl up into this chair and enjoy me. Because you're not going to overthrow me. Now here's where the text turns and it gets a little harder. It does. Because not only does he laugh, but the text says that he rebukes them in his fury. Verse five, he says, then he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. And he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. King Jesus is well in his place and he's enthroned and there's not a vote going to happen on this one i hear it all the time i do maybe you have people will come and they said you know what you believe in the god of the old testament and the new testament yes i do you believe in that sick god that destroys whole nations what kind of person are you how can you ever believe in that god How can you believe in a God who just indiscriminately wipes out women and children? And there's a score of people increasing, I think, every day that want to fall on the side of this gracious, kind, and glorious God and loving, but they want to wipe the Old Testament out. They even want to sever it and say, it's done, it's gone. That was the Old Testament God, and he's an adolescent God who grows up into the New Testament. And you might feel defensive and you might've bought into that. Well, I I don't really understand why God does that, but I do know that that God is loving and I know that he sent his son And, and we get apologetic. And can I just encourage you? There's no need to apologize for God. None. But my friend, you might have to accept the fact that there are times that God says enough. I've had enough. There are times that God speaks to those proud little peacocks who run around with their feathers all fluffed up. And they think that they can shake their fist at God and they think that they can tell God, I am the master of my soul. And God sometimes, not always, because he is patient and he is long-suffering and he is kind. He's been that way to all of us. But there does come those moments And there will come a day when Christ returns and he will rebuke them in his anger and he will terrify them in his wrath. And there will come a day when Jesus comes back and there will be people who meet him and say, Jesus, all roads lead to God and we are with you and Christ will say they don't. And there will be people who plead to God and they will say, hey, yes, I like the Bible, but I also like the Book of Mormon and I like the writings of Hindu and I like the the words of of Muhammad. And they will come and they say, Jesus, aren't all scriptures filled with truth? And he will say, no. There are times that God says, here's the line in the sand, enough. Enough. Adoniram Judson, who many today would consider kind of the father of missions, at least was one of them. He was raised in a Christian home by a Christian dad who loved Christ, sent him off to school and he went to school like a lot of students do and all of a sudden got really, really smart, smarter than his dad and smarter than God. And he had a friend, Jacob Emmaus and Jacob eroded Adoniram's faith. And over the years, his friend Jacob taught him to discredit the scriptures, to reject God, and to reject his dad. When Mr. Judson graduated, and he did graduate, top of his class, he was brilliant. And what he wanted to do is, is he wanted to go to New York to be a writer and to be an actor and to get famous. He had already gone home and had already told his dad, Dad, I'm not a believer in your God anymore. I'm not a believer in Christ. I don't believe any of it. Jacob has enlightened me. He was going to go home and see his parents before he moved to New York. Pulled into a hotel. Checked himself in. And through the night, there was a voice next to him just coughing and screaming and, and in agony and pain. Judson didn't hardly get any sleep that night at all. Woke up the next morning and he went to the gentleman at the, to check out and he said, hey, you know, by the way, I'm just that poor guy next to me, is he doing okay? Because man, I'm telling you what, he was coughing and sick all night. And the guy who was checking him out said to Judson, hey, he actually died last night. For some reason, Adoniram asked him and said, what was his name? He didn't know anyone in the area, and so he was kind of surprised to even ask the question. But he asked him, he said, what was his name? And the guy goes, well, he was a young student that had just graduated from college. Actually, his name is Jacob Emmaus. The guy checking Johnson out looked at him and said, are you okay? And he said, yeah did you know the young man? He goes, yes, he was my roommate in college. He drove home stunned because he realized you can shake your fist at God all day long. You can tell God what you think. You can tell God off. You can shout Hosanna on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and you can say kill him on Friday. But there comes times where God says to young Jacob, I've had enough. And he rebukes the rebellious. Every day, maybe somewhere in the world, in its totality, No but there will come that day when Christ comes back and the option of rebellion will be taken away. The voice of the rebellious will be removed and nobody, nobody on that day will be scribbling on a piece of paper Invictus. You don't need to apologize for God. I think you need to embrace him. You don't need to try and make God softer and cleaner and kinder and more gentle. You need to reveal his holiness. You need to help people understand that there are times where God draws a line in the sand and says enough. You have mocked me enough. You have rejected me enough. You have tainted enough people. You've turned enough people against God. Enough. There are times that God says to people, no, you're not the master of your own fate. You're not the determiner of your own soul. You're not the one who has the authority to determine whether or not you're a man or a woman. That's a decision that God makes. And there are times that God draws a line in the sand and he says, enough. And you don't need to apologize for that, God. You don't. In fact, I think it's a mistake too. I think the scriptures tell us that sometimes God says, I have a voice in this and I will rebuke those who stand up and mock the authority of the king of kings. There's another voice. It's the voice of resolve. I proclaim the decree of the Lord, he says in verse 7. And he said to me, you're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The writer is going back to a discussion that God had had a long time ago with David. David was king and God was making a deal with him. It's recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Samuel, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 14. And there, God is making a promise to David. And he said, David, I love you and I honor your heart. And I want to make a promise to you. There will always be somebody on the throne of Israel that comes from the lineage of your family. And I will call him my son. And I will be to him a father. Don't miss the reality. Don't miss it at all. That one of the most used descriptors of Jesus Christ is Son of God. It is that moment where the Father is telling us, I have fulfilled my promise, David. I will always have someone from the lineage of your family on the throne of the nation of Israel. But oh, don't miss, it's far beyond Israel. He says to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And then he says in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. I want you to go with me on that trip. Do you remember that little interchange that Jesus had with Satan when they were in the desert? And he was being tempted by Satan. and, And Satan came to Christ and said, Hey, if you betray the father, if you turn against the father, I will give you the world. Now Jesus was responding to him, but maybe one of the responses he could have said is simply this, it's not yours to give. You can't give that which you don't own. Because the promise to the son is this, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. I will give you the world. And not only that, the ends of the earth, your possession, it will not stop just at Israel. No, you will be the king that will be what? Ruler of the world. And that's what the scripture says in Philippians 2. God the father says, and I will make sure that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, the reason why Jesus could resist that temptation is because he knew it was a lie. Satan was offering him something that wasn't his to give him. It's true, he's the prince of the demonic realm. It's true, he is the leader of all that which hates God. But it is also true that the father has already promised the world to his son. And it wasn't Satan's to give. You don't need to apologize for God. You need to agree with him. You need to accept him for who he is. If all you listen to is the voice of rebellion, you'll melt in discouragement. You will. You'll think that the world is taking over. You'll think that evil is going to win. You will think that the Christians are all going to be marginalized and, and dis of, you're going to think that evil is never judged if all you do is listen to the voice of rebellion. But the father rebukes them and he declares to them a resolve. There was a fun book written a number of years ago called Six Hours One Friday. It's written by Max Licato. And in this book, he has a number of different views of who Christ is to average people One of them, he says, is that Jesus is kind of like a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot. People stroke it when they want a parking space. When they're driving downtown and they they said, well, Lord Jesus, if you just give me a parking space, because I got five minutes before I go in for this interview and I need you to be with me. They stroke the rabbit's foot before they go take a test. Lord, I know I didn't study at all, but I want you to supernaturally make me smart and and... uh, if you've ever traveled around the world, you'll see this. You'll, you'll get into taxi cabs or, you know, especially in Latin America, but it's all over the world. And you'll have these beads hanging from the rearview mirror. And periodically I've seen people stroke them. Why? Because Christ is like a, a rabbit's foot to them. Or he, Locato describes for some people, uh, Christ is like a Latin slip and you take this little lamp and you're round and you say, you know, God, I want a new job. Can you give that to me? And I'd like a pink Cadillac. Can you give that to me? And I'd, I'd like my spouse to be improved significantly, if not completely overhauled. Can you do that, please? And, and, and we, we have this idea that God's like this magic genie, that Jesus is that. And we can stroke it and boom, he gives us three wishes. And by the way, if he ever says anything to us that we don't like, we just say, get you back into that little hole. Because I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The last one, this will probably date me, maybe some of you, but he says Jesus is like Monty Hall on Make a Deal. And I've seen this. It's really tragic. But there will be people who say, you know what, God? Okay, my wife wants me to go to church. I'll go to church. I'll dress up. It's ridiculous. I have to put pants on. But I'll go, and I'll do go 52 weeks of the year if you will give me door number three. I had a good friend. He's a leader in a church. And when his life of sin came crushing down, he, he told me, he said, Mark, for years, I've been leveraging and, and bartering with God. You don't have to apologize for God. You do have to accept him. And he's not an Aladdin genie, and he's not a rabbit's foot. He's the king of kings, he's the head of the church, he's the master of the universe, he's the savior of all people. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth, and he's the one who sustains the heavens and the earth. And he has an invitation to you that's the fourth voice. The fourth voice in this text is an invitation. And he says in verse 10, therefore, you kings, you, you, you folks in Salem, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's some language that we're just not familiar with. We don't go and kiss the son. We kiss our spouse and maybe we kiss our kids, but we don't kiss her. It's, it's a language and a concept that just seems foreign to us. It's not to their world. It's not to a lot of the world today when I was with the team in, in South Africa, there was a, a plane that landed and I believe the uh, the king that got off it was from Swaziland and, and he had 18 wives that came after him and, um, and I watched as the king came off of the plane and was making his way and all of the dignitaries bowed and kissed him. It, it was a concept for them that they would be as familiar with as the sun rising and setting why because kings are to be honored they are to be bowed they're to be respected that's what you do with kings you don't rise up and tell them hey i'm gonna do it my way king i'm gonna live the way i want to you can have your say over there in the palace but my house i'm king No dignitary understood that. No servant understood that. They understood that he was king and what that person said went no matter where they were at. And they bowed and they worshiped him. The invitation here that he gives to us, serve the Lord, rejoice before the Lord, kiss the son. That's all language of worship. And it's the fourth voice that comes from this text, but it's really a voice of an invitation. At some point in our lives, the scripture says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, do you say that before it's too late? If you listen to the voice of rebellion, sometimes it can sound so strong. It can sound so put together. And oftentimes they shout at God and they tell God off. And they tell God, I will be the determiner of my life. And, and we watch that and we think, wow, where's the lightning, God? And it doesn't come. But make no mistake. The voice of rebuke is there. The voice of resolve is there. And so today it's the voice of invitation. And the invitation is to you and to me. Kiss the sun. Bow your heart before the sun. Do it today before it's too late. The last word that Timothy McFay wrote on this earth was Invictus just before his execution he shook his fist at God and said I am the master of my fate it was not the last words of Timothy McVeigh I know what they were do you? I do I know the last words of Timothy McVeigh Based upon scripture. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow. And every tongue confess. Do you know what the last words of Timothy McVeigh was? Not Invictus. It was this. Jesus Christ. You are Lord. Those are the last words. That Timothy McVeigh a rebellious voice said to Jesus when he stood before him upon his death. Imagine, imagine in prison feeling so strong and so powerful and in seconds standing before our Lord and Savior whom the Father said, I have made him king. I have placed him in Zion my friend if the only voice you hear is the voice of rebellion and that's all you listen to your heart is going to melt but if you listen to the voice of the father you go outside and you just you just listen to it and what what will you hear you might just hear the father laughing cuz he's not threatened by anyone but keep listening you'll also hear the voice of rebuke. And then the last voice will give you an invitation. Will you bow your knee to the sun? Will you recognize your place in this world? You're not the creator, you're the created. And if you hear that voice, dear friends, you will be encouraged and your heart will be filled with such hope. Why? Because you're king is not threatened by this world at all he laughs I'd recommend you join him